This week on Myths and Legends, it's two stories from Japanese folklore about finding the people that get you, that care for you no matter how much kitchenware you stack on your head or if you can't stand to be around them for more than about two minutes at a time. The creature this week is a real-life bird who just wants to spread chaos and, worst of all, talk in church. This is Myths and Legends, episode 354, Cursed. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two stories from Japan, during the Edo period. Though, the history doesn't super matter. We'll jump into the first story with a family that lives in the dark forest. And the monsters that don't. The young woman's father staggered in. He fell through the door and hit the ground. The mother and daughter screamed and rushed to him. As the pool grew around his torso, well, they got me. The father gave them both a weak smile. Then he breathed his last. He was dead. The mother and daughter wept. The father was a warlock, or so the people said. The family of three lived outside of Kyoto. They lived where they were welcome, which was to say far, far away from people. In the forest with the foxes, the tanuki, the tengu that laughed and danced in the forest twice a month, and the fairies, whose children would play each morning before 7am. The girl didn't know all children's parents weren't magicians, but she learned the first time she saw the looks her parents got in town. They avoided going into town whenever possible because, more often than not, it turned violent, with someone blaming them for their sick uncle or their dying niece. Her parents forgave the people. The world was a scary, unpredictable place. They just wanted whatever solace they could find. Wanted to do whatever they could to make sense of it all. Like I said, it frequently did turn violent. But it never turned deadly. Not until that morning. The morning the father returned to their shack. In the afternoon, they had to bury him on the edge of the forest. Her mother would learn, eventually, that the father had stood up for someone in town when a samurai and his lackeys were hassling the man. The man was able to flee, but the father didn't, without a slice that ran from his collarbone to his waist. He summoned all the magic he could to make it home, to see them one last time. Now, three were two, and soon, two would be one. The mother had been sick for some time, but the father had been making her medicines. In truth, it was losing him that gave the illness the upper hand. In under a year, the daughter was by her mother's bedside, holding her hand in the small hours of the morning. The mother said that she had loved and been loved. Her only regret was that she wouldn't be there for her daughter. She winced as she rose and pointed off toward the table. The black rice bowl. Would the girl get it? The girl rose and brought it over, hefting it in her hands. Huh, heavy. The mother said that it was bad, for a poor girl to be pretty. If she was pretty and lonely and innocent, none but the gods would help her. And 
They had left this family a long time ago. She thought of a way, though. A difficult path, but not as hard as it could have been. The black bowl came to a rest over the girl's hair and eyes until her nose bumped against it. Mom? The girl said, and then her mother whispered something incomprehensible. The lights came on, and the bowl disappeared. At least, for the girl. The girl felt her head. What happened? She felt her face, or tried to, but the bowl stopped it. It will save you from what's heavier to bear, the mother said. You will not move it until the time comes. The girl nodded. Yeah, okay. How would she know when the time came? The mother laid back. She would know. The mother exhaled. It was time. The sun hadn't yet warmed the window, and the mother's eyes found the darkness. It was still early. I haven't seen the fairy children for such a long time, the mother said. The girl understood. The mother rose slowly, her daughter helping to lift her under the arms. Staggering outside, the pair took a seat on the soft grass. The girl shifted her mother when the woman's head bonked the rice bowl, wanting to rest on the girl's shoulder. And soon, they were sitting, mother and daughter. Before them, the fairy children ducked around mushrooms, laughing and playing hide-and-seek. The sun started to rise in the east. The mother sighed. It was all so beautiful. The girl looked over, and there was a smile on her mother's face. The mother died sometime before the sun came up. The girl buried her next to the father on the edge of the forest. This was the last of it. The rice, that is. No one was coming for her. She knew this, but still, somehow, she hoped. She hoped that she had a long-lost aunt or grandparent, a secret friend from town her parents had talked to for this situation, that even the lurking things of the forest might take pity and adopt her. The house was simply quiet, and she, the girl, would starve, starve and die, like her parents, if she did nothing. Figuring it was better to journey on a full stomach than an empty one, she wrapped up the household gods in a kerchief, bound her sandals, and said goodbye to her mother and father, leaving when the sun was up the following morning. She thought leaving might be sad, but she was happy to go before such a warm, happy place became a tomb. Ugh, look at her, one woman, washing in the river, said to the other. The other gasped. It's a statue come alive, an oni playing a trick. She's a shameless wretch is what she is. Out here with her false modesty, roaming the country with a black bowl. You know what she's doing, right? She's crying out to every man who passes by like, Hey, come see what's hidden underneath. <laughs> Enough to make a kind, wholesome person sick. The girl ran off, tears twinkling in the morning sun. While the woman standing next to the speaker in the river said, a kind, wholesome person, um, who was that exactly? Because it wasn't the speaker. The girl, though, was distraught. If she couldn't be herself and she couldn't hide, how exactly was she supposed to live? She learned, quickly, why parents chose to live in the forest by the monsters there. It was better than living in the villages with those monsters. Children threw rocks and mud at her on account of her bowl. That was annoying, but understandable. 
The men who grabbed at her clothes and even the bull, seeking to drag her away by force, were something else entirely. She quickly learned who to avoid. Okay, I see from your resume that from, what was it, 1611 to 1614, you were employed at Woods, the interviewer said to the young woman. Is that like a cafe? Oh, no, I'm reading here that that's the Woods. You live there. Oh, cool, okay. The interviewer studied the bull with a grimace, one that she thought was invisible for the young woman. I think we're going to go in a different direction, the interviewer said, filing the resume in the trash. Is it? Is it the bowl on my head? The girl asked, her voice rising to a panic. The interviewer's eyes glazed over for a brief moment. Employment law prohibited her from saying the... Then she laughed. Uh, Just kidding. There's no employment law. Yes, yes, it's the bowl. She hated it and she hated the young woman. Get out. The young woman explained to the merchant's security, as they were throwing her out of the building, that she couldn't remove the bowl. She had gotten it on the morning the fairy children were playing, but not when the Tengu had tea parties and... Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, she realized how that sounded. She hit the ground. Hard. They say you should dress for the job you want. If the young woman knew what job required you to wear a magic rice bowl over your head, she actually would have taken it, because after three more interviews that week, the young woman sat on the road, hitting the bowl against a rock, trying to break it. What are you doing? She heard. She looked up and saw the traveling musician. You wouldn't understand, the young woman said. The musician agreed, yeah, that was probably true. Then he took out a pick and called out a, Oh girl with the black bowl on your head, why do you sit weeping by the roadside? Which, yeah, I would love to sing for you, but I can't figure out how to get auto-tune into Adobe Audition, and also can't sing to save my life. I picture him not so much singing, though, as shouting with that musical quality that the actor Matt Berry has, which I also can't do. Regardless, maybe because she could see that this man was different, maybe because he wasn't leaving, so the best way to get him to go was to just explain about the magic bowl, her parents, and how she couldn't make enough money to survive because of the black bowl her parents put on her head. Wow, that's quite a story, the musician said. He wished he could help her, but he was struggling too. Think about a story like that, though. It sounded unfinished. He strummed his biwa, and as he walked off, he sang a tune. The white cherry blooms by the roadside, how black is the canopy of cloud. The wild cherry droops by the roadside, beware the black canopy of cloud. Hark, hear the rain, hear the rainfall from the black canopy of cloud. Alas, the wild cherry, its sweet flowers are marred. Marred are the sweet flowers, forlorn on the spray. I don't understand your song, the young woman called out. Yet it is plain enough, the musician said, being, yes, one of those guys. It wasn't plain enough. The difference was that the young woman didn't have the cash on hand to pay the artist for the meaning of his art. The rich farmer, who was rich, however, did. Okay, the wild, okay, I'll let you in on a little secret. The wild cherry is the face of a maiden I saw sitting by the road, The black wooden bowl is the black cloud that I rhyme with cloud like three times. The rain is her tears because she weeps for hunger because no one will give her work, the musician said. 
The farmer shook his head. That was so interesting and creative. It wasn't, but we won't begrudge the farmer for wanting to appear artistic in front of the singer, or altruistic. He said he wished that the young woman was real so he could help her. The musician wrestled with it for a bit before revealing that he hadn't been creative enough to think of the girl. It, she was sitting less than a stone's throw from the farmer's gate, which was how the young woman got a job. We'll see how this job changes her life, but that will be right after this. Fruits and veggies, that's where getting healthy starts. But you're supposed to have five servings of fruits and veggies. That's a lot. I like kale. I like broccoli. I don't like them that much. So what do you do when you're in that, I know what I should be eating, but I'm not eating it limbo? Well, a healthy diet makes for a strong foundation, and that's why Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition has been such a solid addition to my routine. When I was looking into it, I immediately noticed that Field of Greens superfood powder is formulated by physicians and made in the U.S. because they care how the ingredients are grown. That's, of course, USDA organic fruits and vegetables, not extracts. And I think the closer we get to the source, the better. To the source and to the purpose. This is not an if it's green, throw it in kind of deal. Each superfood and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for a specific benefit, like supporting your heart or lungs, your kidneys. Your metabolism too. These are just some of the highlights. We put a link in the show notes so you can see why we realized Field of Greens is different. And if you want to try it like us, I got you 15% off your first order and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code LEGENDS. That's promo code LEGENDS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com. Two years later, he had to know. The young man, the son of the farmer couple, was home from Kyoto. He had heard all about the young woman, how she started in the fields and finding favor with the farmer and his family now basically ran their household. The son of the farmer was not into bowls on heads, but it did prompt the question of what she was hiding under there. After some brief, shallow curiosity and some fairly awkward, angled peaks, the son settled for a different tactic. Get to know her. Soon, he didn't care about the bowl at all. He had met the woman he was going to spend the rest of his life with. The only one. He wouldn't even marry a second concurrent wife. That was how into the bowl-headed woman he was. And she was in love with him, too. Let's pretend the story says that. For real, it doesn't at all. It only says that the farmer's son decided to marry her. He couldn't be talked out of it by his panicked parents, and the wedding day was set. So yeah, they, they loved each other. Probably. On the big day, the young woman's ladies, a new thing for her, braced themselves on tables and pillars, trying to get as much leverage as possible so they could get the bowl off of the head. But it wouldn't budge. The young woman didn't care. She had lived with the bowl for years now and it didn't even seem to trouble the young man. Their connection was deeper than looks. He had never even seen her face. It transcended money or station because no one could dissuade him from marrying her, even though they tried. A lot. Like, to an offensive degree on the part of her employers slash future in-laws. We're gonna have to leave it on, the ladies said of the young woman's bowl. It's magic, it wasn't gonna come off anyway, the young woman said. And the ladies turned. Really? It was magic. 
they said. They had no idea that the bowl she could see through and couldn't pry from the top of her head for anything was magic. That made sense now. She was glad the servants felt comfortable enough around her, but she really didn't care for the sarcasm. I don't care about the bowl. The farmer's son barked for the final time. For real, let's do this. And they did. The family, who was so not ashamed, but not not ashamed that their son was marrying one of their servants, failed to send out a lot of the invitations to the ceremony. Plus, they weren't getting anything for a dowry, so it was crackers for the reception. Not even Ritz, but like the Kirkland Signature crackers and boxed sake. The dads would get it, like boxed wine. Generally, it's a cheaper wine that you can get in large quantities, but it's, it's sake, a Japanese rice wine. That's, it's a joke. The wedding attendee said boxed wine actually stays fresher longer, and studies have shown that most people can't tell the difference between more expensive wines and their cheaper... Okay, okay, got it. No jokes around the joke, police, the dad said, shaking his head. He looked to the head table. Ah, there she was. He watched them each drink their sake from a silver flagon, and, according to the story, it was done. They were married. And she exploded. Well, her head exploded, which does not sound better, but it is because it wasn't her head. It was the bowl. The moment they were married, it exploded into a torrent of gold and jewels. The dad sifted his hands through the money on the floor. Wow, this would be a rare dowry for even a princess. He loved his new daughter-in-law. He looked up to his son, who didn't seem to care about the gold and gemstones. He was looking into the young woman's face. He told her, My dear, there are no jewels that shine like your eyes. the story because the young woman starts in the dark forest, and her tale of danger and woe takes her through the world of the humans, which turn out to be worse to her than any of the oni, tengu, or fairies ever were. But she continues on, and partially because it was a good thing to do, partially because she literally had no choice, she didn't change herself to fit the world, but found the one person that accepted her for her. So much so that, when the bowl was gone and the money rained down, it didn't change a thing. He was still as in love with her as ever. In the next story today, we'll start with a father and son on the path in the dark forest. A path where their worst fears have just been realized. The father squinted at the road up ahead. They had strayed too far from home. He and his son had been in Kyoto after dark, selling things at the market. It was too late. This late, out on the edges of the city, they risked running into them. Son, I need you to be very still. One of them is coming this way, the man said with a quaver in his voice. Dad, no, the boy said, matching his panicked, nervous energy. This is not a drill, son. Home isn't far away. If we run... We can make it, the dad looked over his shoulder. But what about the supplies, the boy asked. The father slapped the produce from his hands. Leave them. Did the boy understand the danger they were in? Did he? The father grabbed the boy by the wrist and, supplies bouncing on the road, pulled him into the forest toward the emergency secret way home. Paths known only to them that the father and son took if they ever showed up. 
The son looked back over his shoulder, but the father hissed, No! The father and son couldn't even lay eyes on them. Then, the men would be in their power. They ran off toward home. There, in the road, a woman, a normal human woman, walked up. In the lantern light, the fruit and small bags of rice peppered the ground. Did did someone leave these here? Hello? Does someone need help? She called out and shrugged. She stepped over the supplies and continued on her way. Yeah, so the father was only in danger, emotionally speaking. He had lost his wife a few years back, too long ago for the son to remember much about her, and he was really not dealing with it in a healthy way. Basically, the sight of any woman was like losing her all over again. So the father began to avoid all women. Then he began to fear all women, not because he hated them, but because he couldn't bear to be reminded of the worst thing that had ever happened to him. This worked for them in a way that dysfunctional behaviors can work for years until you look back and realize you're far down a road you never quite intended. One February morning, the father's knee ached. He had a hard time rising from bed that day. As he warmed his hands over the charcoal, a thought would not leave his head. His son would not be okay without him. His son was a good kid, smart, hardworking, but he would be alone someday. He had friends, but those friends were now growing up and getting married. His father sighed. You need to get married, the father said, looking at the son. What? The father could hear the trembling in his son's voice. The father said, yeah. He felt like not dealing with his own stuff and avoiding all pain and trauma, no matter the cost, had given his son some problematic behaviors. They were going to fix that. The son said his father had to be joking talk to a woman. The father said it would be difficult for him, too. But these fears were learned, and they could be unlearned, too. I'm not up in the current literature for therapies when it comes to phobias and trauma, but the father did a sort of exposure therapy with the boy and himself. It was hard at first being in the presence of a woman. The father had to confront his own despair and unresolved pain. The son had to learn to tolerate the presence of this vague, terrifying other he had been taught to fear since a very young age. A lot of growing all around. Eventually, the father was introducing his son to young women in order to get him comfortable socializing. It was like a pickup artist thing, but well-intentioned and wholesome, so nothing like a pickup artist thing. 115, 116, the father mouthed to himself on the other end of the tavern. Yes, yes, I must leave to, to urinate, the son said to the young woman before running away. The father stood from the table and held out his arms, taking his son into an embrace. Yes, my boy, yes, he did it. 121, two minutes, the son high-fived. Remember, he wasn't nearly far enough from the woman he had been talking to for her not to see this, but it didn't matter. They did it. They hit the two-minute threshold that they had been working toward for months. Now it was time for the son's wedding. The son's smile faded. Wait, what? We'll jump back in on the sun's totally cool and comfortable wedding day, but that will, once again, be right after this.
He did love Fusa, the woman his father matched him with. During the ceremony, though, which stretched on for three, four minutes, the son grew visibly uncomfortable. Fusa started crying. It was not going well. This caused the son to freak out even more, asking her to please not do that. She said that he didn't like her. He didn't think she was pretty. He, you are prettier than a bean, a, a bean flower. You are prettier than a hen in a barnyard or a carp in a pond, is a direct quote from one version. Fusa didn't think that she would ever see someone calling her prettier than a hen, fish, or bean to be much of a compliment, but she could see that he was trying. I want, most of all, for you to be happy, he said, and he meant it. It would take some work, but they would get there, together. And they did. Mostly. The story said he was still awkward, but it was cute awkward. They got along well, and then, a year after they married, tragedy struck. The young man's father died. It wasn't violent or something horrible. He was older, and he became sick, accepting that it was his time. If only the father could have convinced his son to accept that it was the father's time. Hey, so just wondering if you're gonna bathe this week? Fusa forced a smile as she found the son out by the family grave. She found him hugging the monument. She had not lost a parent, let alone both, and she likely knew that people grieved in their own ways. She had told the son that he could do what he needed, take all the time he needed. They didn't even have to work anymore. Part of the benefits of his rich father being a recluse for most of his life was that he didn't have the opportunity to spend money, so they got the estate and his vast fortune. Then Fusa's face lit up. Hey, what if you went to Kyoto? The son looked up. What? Why? She said, well, it was the capital after all. The tears that continued streaming down the stone showed her that he was not interested in patriotism. She said, okay, he could tell her about the latest fashions. That way she could make them all at home. No response. She said, well, it, it's what he and his father used to do, right? Go to Kyoto? They would go at night and be weird about it and all that, but still, that's something that they did. He looked up, taking her hands. Yes, yes, he would. He embraced her and rushed off to pack for his journey. The sun thought he would feel something. The sun in the sky wasn't beautiful, it was hot. The birds chirping were grating and annoying. Any excitement he felt had melted into a blobby, unwieldy malaise. He made it to the market when he decided to turn back. He had made a mistake in coming here. This was different without his father. He, turning around slowly, the sun had to see what caught his eye. Who? caught his eye. It was his father, there in the market. The son ran to him. Father, father, I'm here, he screamed, but to no avail. His father was trapped, trapped behind an invisible wall, itself embedded in a column. The father looked panicked too. He looked younger, an age when he and the boy used to travel in secret to Kyoto. The father's face softened, along with the son's. He was weeping too. So that's, that's a mirror the store owner said. I don't care what you call it. I can see my father again. Oh, father, you're so much younger now. Pale, though. Careworn. The young woman took it from the pillar where it hung. Gasping, the son looked behind it. How was this magic possible? 
a whole world behind their own. It was amazing. It's, it's shiny metal. You see what's in front of the mirror. It's a reflection. The shop owner really wanted this man to know. I don't know what those words mean. Sell this to me now. The young man started pouring coins out on the table. After a few more back and forths, where the seller busted out her whiteboard, trying to explain how light interacted with a reflective surface, a move the sun read as her trying to drive up the price, so he kept raising it. Eventually, the woman gave up and parted with the mirror for way, way more than it was worth, and the son ran home, clutching the mirror close to his chest. How was Kyoto? Fusa asked when the son arrived back home. Excellent. Great, the son said. He will be over by the alcove. Oh, okay, great. Awesome, Fusa said. He seemed happy, which was good. What wasn't good was the alcove. Now, I'm not an expert in Japanese architecture, but the alcove referenced in the story appears to be an area called the Tokonoma, a recessed space in the wall of a reception room or main room. It's set apart, bordering on sacred, and so that's where the husband kept the mirror. Fusa noticed that her husband was spending a lot more time inside, rather than weeping at the father's grave, which was nice. He was, however, spending a lot more nights at the Tokonoma. Eventually, she asked him why, and he told her. In Kyoto, he found, wait for it, his father. Fusa said she didn't understand his father was dead. The son said that's what he thought, but he found a way to communicate with the dead, a magic portal. The wife thought that was weird, but whatever it was, it seemed to be helping her husband cope. So, okay, that was cool. It was, until the next day, when Fusa picked up the mirror in the Tokonoma. She didn't know what she expected, Not her late father-in-law, because that was impossible. But she didn't expect that she would learn that she was married to a cheater. The wife looked at the woman, who seemed to notice her at the exact same time. What the? Then the wife began fuming. No, 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 no. This, This dancing girl from Kyoto didn't get to be angry with her. She suddenly understood why her husband spent so much time by the tokonoma. Staying up late, talking in whispers. He was having an affair. What's going on? The son asked when he returned to find bags by the door. I'm going home. Fusa couldn't even look him in the eyes. You are home? What? What's going on? Fusa said, what's going on? What's going on is that he was making up for lost time, wasn't he? All the time when he was a kid, all cloistered here? What's going on was he was cheating on her with some girl from Kyoto. He said he didn't know what Fusa was talking about, but she held up the mirror. She discovered this. The son looked. Oh, hi, Dad. His dad looked concerned, but also happy to see him. You liar. You dress her in my clothes, do her hair like mine. You should be ashamed, Fusa said. The son tried to explain to Fusa that it wasn't another woman. He didn't know how she had seen something different than him. Luckily, a servant had more insight than both of them. Knowing that something was driving the couple apart, and frankly, not wanting to serve only the son going through yet another grief spiral, the servant stole out and found the closest help he could, an abbess from a local temple, a Buddhist nun. 
She arrived before Fusa's parents had the chance to come get her. She entered the house to the couple refusing to speak to one another. Well, Fusa refusing to speak with the son, who was angry that she was sequestering his father. The abbess heard all about it from the son and looked at the mirror. Ah, she understood. She said if the pair didn't mind, she needed to take this magical device thing into another room and have a word with the people within. Fusa and the son agreed. Fifteen minutes later, the nun emerged. She had reached an agreement. She looked at the couple. There were multiple people in this thing. The son did speak with his father. The nun turned to the man. She said, as a nun, with her nun powers, she could speak beyond the reaches of the mirror. The father said it was time to let him go. The son's eyes began brimming with tears. The nun said the father wanted his son to live a full life, not mourn him forever. They had so many good years together, and the father wanted the son to have many good years with his own family and not be stuck in the past. The son looked in the mirror, seeing the father beginning to cry too, but sensed from his face that he thought it was time to say goodbye as well. The son gripped the mirror, hugging it, and said a final goodbye to his father. He handed the mirror to the nun, who turned to the wife. There was a woman in there, and she did love Fusa's husband. Fusa looked with rage at her husband, but the nun held up her hands. The husband didn't know about her love, and the woman didn't want to tear the family apart. So the nun spoke to her. She, too, will commit to life as a nun. How can I know she won't come looking for him if she changes her mind? Fusa spat. The nun told her to take a look. The woman was committed. She had already shaved her own head. The nun held up the mirror on the other side of her head, opposite Fusa, showing a serious and contrite woman with a shaved head. Fusa nodded. Okay. She, but they, will come live with us at the temple. After all the work they did, can you two find reconciliation? The nun asked. Fusa and her husband took each other's hands. Yes. Yes, they could. This was a new beginning for them. He had moved on after his father's death. And they just weathered their first fight. They were going to be okay. I don't know about my dad, though, the husband said. Fusa asked, why? It's just temple life. He was never one for religion. I liked in the story how, in the end, the woman used their own mistaken beliefs to help them to grow and heal. Next week, we're back in Greek myth with the stories of Ares. Maybe. Because, as it turns out, everybody kind of hates Ares. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of praying mantis eggs, which will contain, I guess, 50 to 200 babies, you can get ad-free and bonus episodes that, sadly, do not come with 750 add-on ladybugs. Don't even know what that's for. Check out mythpodcast.com membership or find us on Apple Podcasts for more info on the membership. The 
The creatures this week are magpies, from medieval bestiaries and basically everywhere. So I went into this thinking that the magpie was just a bird, but it's a feathery chaos baby, and I love it for that. Starting in the medieval world, in Europe, they were something of a bad omen, which, yes, an extremely common bird landing on your house was an omen that could, potentially, mean death was going to visit your family. That being said, I honestly think that says more about the high middle ages in Europe than it does about magpies. There was a rhyme regarding magpies, one for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral, and four for a birth, which is clever, sure, but once again is vague enough to be completely unrelated to magpies. Oh, a collection of birds mean either sorrow, happiness, a death, or a birth? That's the human experience. Medieval bestiaries got a little more creative. The birds' unseemly chatter symbolized those who didn't pay attention in church, the black and white feathers represented vanity, and the bird itself was either literally the devil, or, according to Norse legends, a witch in disguise. It's said that even Noah, of Ark fame, hated these, and, deciding to treat himself to some extinction, shooed them away from salvation on the Ark. The magpie, undeterred, flew up and perched on the roof and in the rafters, annoying the eight humans left on Earth, with its incessant chatter over the following months. There might be a real-life reason why the magpie is so reviled, though, and that is because it's smart. Yeah, apparently magpies rank among the world's most intelligent creatures, and they are one of the few non-mammal creatures to recognize themselves in a mirror. There's a famous opera where a woman almost hangs for theft, but the culprit is revealed to be a magpie that's been taking shiny objects. And real-life magpies do take shiny objects because they take all sorts of objects. Scientists at Exeter University did a study to see if magpies preferred shiny objects over regular ones, and they found something surprising. The magpies were smart enough to be wary of novel objects, meaning if it was something new that they hadn't seen before, they avoided it. If they didn't know what it was, they were cautious enough to give it space, until they knew that, yes, it was safe to steal. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>